This summer, I uh, was fortunate to have a, a short sabbatical, and one of the things my family and I did was drive uh, across the country to Yellowstone and to Grand Teton National Park. And then a little bit later, after we came home, I got to go by myself back to the Colorado mountains to a uh, retreat center where I was there about a week. And all in all, I crossed the Continental Divide four different times in three different places. The most spectacular, in my opinion, was Independence Pass at over 12,000 feet. I think there's a picture of me at the uh, Continental Divide there. And um, albeit I, I drove in a fairly modern, well, 2004 Honda Accord, uh, had air conditioning and it was on a paved road, but I still felt like it was quite an accomplishment. And then I got to thinking about the early European settlers and people who came across that pass. And particularly, I'd done some reading before on Lewis and Clark. And it, 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 they were sent out from Thomas Jefferson in, in a race, basically, against the French to find a water passage um, from the east to the west. And, and they were convinced that whoever found that passage first would secure economic freedom and security and have the leg up on the other one. Not only were Lewis and Clark skilled leaders and explorers, they were master boatsmen. And when you're trying to find a water route, you need people who are experienced with boats and canoes, and, and that's what they were. As Lewis and Clark headed west in their canoes, they were brimming with optimism, fueled by a sense of adventure and confidence. Their solution to the perceived problem seemed to be working. I mean, they're going in their canoes, and they're headed west, and everything's going fine. That is until they reached the Continental Divide. You have to appreciate that up until this point, until they reached the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, no one in the Discovery Corps, not Lewis, not Clark, not any of their men or, or helpers, none of them had ever seen true mountains before. Never seen them. The Appalachians were the only things they had ever seen in their lives before as far as mountains. They had assumed that their solution to finding a water route to the Pacific was going to be found in boats. And to be fair, once they got over the Continental Divide, they would turn again to boats as part of the solution to their problem, to getting to the Pacific. But in the face of the Rocky Mountains, they didn't realize that it wasn't their solution that was necessarily wrong. It was their perception of the problem. Boats are the right solution for lakes and rivers, but they had failed to conceive of mountains standing in their path. Okay. Hold that idea. This evening, we pick up the saga of Israel as told in the book of Samuel. The story is set near the end of the time of the judges, when injustice and lawlessness and corruption, even in the priesthood, was rampant. Israel was without a king, the priests were removed from their power by Yahweh, and Samuel was appointed prophet and judge over the people. Samuel was faithful to God during his lifetime, and God was the king of Israel. God was the king, he fought the battles, Samuel was the prophet, he told people how to be close to God. It was a good arrangement. But the situation, as good as it was, didn't last. And as we'll see, it wasn't ever meant to last. God had better things in mind. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the better things that you have in mind. And I pray that you would 
reveal those things to us in a way that is more than cognitive, but in a way that penetrates our hearts and changes how we see you, how we see ourselves, and how we see our place in the world. Amen. To the text. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I'm just going to take it chunk by chunk, deal with it piece by piece, and that's how we're going to roll. First three, first three verses. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiha. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside to dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So a great deal of time has passed since the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel has all of a sudden become old. He's had a family, and he's appointed his two grown sons, Joel, which, whose name means Yahweh is God, and Abiha, which means my father is Yahweh. Samuel has appointed these boys as judges over Israel. Now that's a strange move by Samuel. Because all throughout scripture, judges are appointed as individuals and they're appointed by God. That is not a position that is passed down like a dynasty anywhere in scripture. God doesn't seem to sanction that kind of relationship. Worse yet, despite Samuel's faithfulness in naming his sons and trying to raise them in the ways of the Lord, these guys are not good men. They abuse their power. And they break some of the most fundamental laws of God by perverting justice and taking bribes. Who has money when you go to court and you're able to bribe someone? It's the wealthy, right? So this injustice of taking bribes is implicitly against the poor and the needy and the fatherless and the widow and the people that God spends so much time in Scripture caring about, right? You can sense the uncertainty that people must have felt in Israel. Samuel's getting old. God had not seemed to appoint any new judge or leader other than Samuel, and so Samuel takes matters into his own hands by appointing his sons as judges. But they weren't God's men. So what would happen to Israel? How long would they wait for God to provide? Well, let's continue the story. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, behold, You have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they forsake me and serve other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, however. You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will rule over them. The elders of Israel feel the seriousness of the national situation. They see with human eyes the problem, uh, and they, they perceive it to be a problem of leadership. Samuel is old. His sons are corrupt. 
The nations all around them are stronger and becoming stronger because they have centralized governments. And they have standing armies, not just volunteers like Israel. They have valiant kings who seem to get things done in the world. And this waiting on the Lord is nice. It's a nice idea when he comes through. Uh, So let's just get a king to judge over us because it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. And here's the key phrase. They want a king like what? Like the nations. They want a king like the nations. Well, Samuel is upset. And by the way, just notice a little window into Samuel's heart. He's jealous. Like, let's just be honest about it. Uh, well, that's one thing that drives me nuts, side note here, about character studies in the Bible. There's no, like, except for Jesus, there's no good characters in the Bible, right? You, you don't want to be just like Samuel. There's some great qualities about Samuel, but he's a fallen guy. And the, he's a little bit miffed that they want someone else to judge the, the country when, yeah, well, me and my boys got this. I, they, they just need some straightening up. But Yahweh recognizes that the offense is actually against him. And here's the interesting thing. I'm going to make a statement now, and most of you will find some cognitive dissonance in this statement. That's good. I, I just want to bug you. God was not against Israel having a king. He was against their reason for having a king. Okay, I'm going to come back to that later. Don't worry. Just sit in your discomfort a little bit. But for now, let's focus on the details of the text. The elders want a king like the nations. And so Yahweh tells Samuel to warn them about what it is that they're really asking for. Let's read verses 10 through 18. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, This will be the procedure of a king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and he'll place them all for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed and of your your vineyards, and he'll give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll also take your male servants, your female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of all your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Some translations have his slaves. And then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So at Yahweh's command, Samuel gives the elders of Israel a warning. He gives them an overview of the things that they're asking for. Note, this is not what would happen if they had a king. God is their king. This is what would happen if they got a king like the nations. Because kings of the nations did things like conscript people's husbands and sons to serve in a standing army. They took whatever women they wanted whenever they wanted to do whatever they wanted. And some of these kings had harems of hundreds of women. People's land ceased to really be their land. 
They had to work it just as hard, but give a 10% of everything they had to the king. And whenever the king wanted more, you had to give more. So your animals, your land, your property was all under the king and his reign and his sovereignty. These are serious warnings. From our perspective, it's easy to criticize the Israelites. Why would you enter into an agreement like this? Why would you do that? But when you think about it, we live with these types of temptations all the time. From a human perspective, which is our natural vantage point, things looked scary. Samuel had served Israel well, and under his leadership, people were treated fairly. God had been the warrior king and defeated the Philistines who were technologically and militarily superior to the Israelites. But Samuel was old, and his solution of his sons was a failed experiment. Meanwhile, the nations around them seemed to be getting stronger. They had centralized governments, fancy religious systems. They had larger, more technologically advanced armies. They had economic systems that were more sophisticated. On the outside, it seemed like the grass was greener in other nations. So they jumped to the conclusion that they needed to make a move. They needed action. They needed a strategy because if they didn't save themselves, who was going to save them? Don't we often jump to conclusions out of our fear that God won't really be good to us? At least not as good as we could be to ourselves if we could make things happen. We go to church, but so often our true faith is in our own plans that we've already made and ask God to bless them. Or it's in our bank accounts or our job security, or our self-esteem. We tend to have faith as Christians in the things that we feel we can't control, but for everything else, there's reason and action. But that take is completely false on all fronts. First of all, we're technically not in control of anything. I know as a control person, that, that's hard to say. We're not in control of anything. Technically, theologically speaking, your heart is beating right now because God wills it to. And I know some of you are thinking, no, my heart's beating because my medulla oblongata is saying to beat. But I'm telling you that the laws of physics which make that circuit, that, that electrical impulse go to your cardiac muscle to beat, the laws of physics are only the laws of physics because God chooses them to be the laws of physics. The one who holds all things together, Colossians 1 is holding them together the way they are. He could choose to not hold them together that way and it would be over the way that we know it. That's not to, to freak us out, but to humble us and to turn our attention to how amazing a God is that we have. The whole foundation of our lives is really built on faith that he's going to keep doing the things that he's doing tomorrow like he did today, that the sun comes up or rather that we go around. Second, most of us deep down are afraid to leave things up to God. I know I am in a lot of areas. We fear that his solutions to our problems won't be as good as the ones we can come up with ourselves. We fear that maybe he won't do as good a job with our lives as we could. And because we fear, we are willing to stay addicted, to stay oppressed, to stay enslaved, 
thinking all the while that we're the ones who chose our activities or the masks that we wear or the things that we put our faith in, only to find, oh, I'm actually quite addicted, attached, oppressed. I can't get out. When Yahweh rescued the people from Egyptian slavery, and you remember when we, I mean, we went through this Exodus series a couple years back, horrific conditions. The worst job in the ancient world, I think we read some poetry from the ancient Near East making fun of people who make bricks. It was like the worst job. It's like if dirty jobs was a thing back then, uh, Mike Rowe wouldn't even do that job. It was so gross and so horrible. And so Yahweh rescues this people. They had done nothing to deserve it. Brings them out in the wilderness. They're thrilled. He'd just overthrown the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh. Oh, he got his and woo, we're out in the wilderness. I don't know how much time goes by, but not much apparently in the scriptures and they're already complaining. And they miss the routine because they don't know, even though God provides food and water whenever they need it, they just don't know how to count on it. And they want to be masters of their own routine to know at least, hey, we got crappy food, but we knew we were getting it three times a day and where it was coming from and how we could count on it. Because we're creatures of habit like that. And they actually asked Moses at different times if they could go back. Go back to slavery. That's how screwed up we are. That we go back to the things that enslave us because they're comfortable, aren't they? Freedom, on the other hand, is dangerous. It's scary. It's unpredictable. Most of us, I'm willing to wager, and I'll just say definitely myself, most of us have never lived a completely free day in our entire lives. We are afraid to let God be king, to allow Jesus' love and forgiveness to remake us, to take our masks off, that we might live wild and live free in the freedom of God. I've had it in tastes, but man... I'm not sure I've lived a completely free day. And I, I wonder if you dig deep into just a 24-hour period or even a week. You know, it's hard. And as it always turns out in the scriptures and in real life too, God's solutions are always better than the ones that we come up with. They're unorthodox sometimes, which is ironic because like orthodoxy is what stuff God does, but whatever. So Samuel... He warns the Israelites that their solution to leadership by choosing a nation like, or a king like the nations, is just another form of slavery. He, he warns them in no uncertain terms. Let's see how they respond, verses 19 through 22. Nevertheless, that's an ominous beginning to a sentence, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go, go every man to his city. Fear, adrenaline, and stress. They have a way of blinding us from reality. 
You know, emotions can be such powerful allies motivating us to do things, but emotions are, are horrible masters, horrible masters. In the face of Samuel's warnings, which would have been clear to the elders who saw how the leaders and kings of other nations actually treated their people. I mean, they, they saw these things. They still insisted that they want a king. Not to belabor the point, but this is such low-hanging fruit. Not only a king, but they wanted to be like all the nations that their king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Simple question. I'll answer it. Don't worry. I'm not putting you on the spot. Just think. What was Israel's vocation? What was their job? their purpose. Why was Israel Israel? God created Israel to be a light to the nations so that the nations would want to be like Israel and would want to worship Yahweh. We see this in fits and starts throughout scripture like Um, In the Exodus account, there's a group of Egyptians, some of them close to Pharaoh, who witnessed the power of Yahweh over the Egyptian gods and the goodness of Moses' leadership, and they said, we want to go with you. And so from the very beginning of Israel going out in the desert, there's Egyptians with them. So that's a little bit of a, a witness to this idea. And we see this through Rahab, the foreign prostitute who, who saw the power of God And through her loyalty, made a way for her family to join, be grafted in to the Israelite people. We saw this through Ruth the Moabitess who was grafted into the people of God, right? And the Moabites, if you follow that line of people, they're quite despised, accursed of God. But yet Ruth brings in this line of the Moabites into not only the people of Israel, but into Jesus' lineage. Fantastic. But here we see Israel at a low point. The light of the nations is asking for a king so that they can be like the nations, which is an abdication of her vocation, right? We see that that Israel wanted a king to do two main things. One, to judge their people, a task Yahweh was accomplishing quite successfully through Samuel at the time, and to fight her battles, a, a, a job that Yahweh had with a perfect track record, like no one had ever defeated him in battle up to this point. So you can see the deep theological problems with the text. You don't need me to point that out. But I want to show you something a bit deeper that you may have missed. And I want to go back to the statement I made earlier when I said that God is not against Israel having a king. He was against their reason for having a king. I have been taught otherwise a long time in my life. Every time I've come across this passage or or, uh, heard it it teached or taught, I've been taught that this passage is all about having how having a human king is a direct rejection of God and how at best kingship is a compromise or a plan B that God merely allows. First of all, that's just a horrible theology when you actually press on it because since when does God just like make a concession and do something he doesn't want to do? Okay, but that's not what our, the, the road I want to go down. I, I just think that scripture, when you, when you read it as a whole, paints us a different picture about kingship. And I think the the picture begins at creation. The nations that surrounded Israel had their own creation stories, their own creation myths. Myths that borrowed from one another, 
with similar themes and concepts, but they had different names for their gods and goddesses and human characters in these stories. But there was an overarching commonality with all of these creation myths uh, in, in the nations surrounding Israel. And, and that commonality is this, that the gods or goddesses created human beings in order to serve them, to do the work that they did not want to do themselves. And in order to govern these human slaves, basically, humans were created as slaves in these ancient Near Eastern creation stories. In order to control the slaves, to control the human beings, the god or goddess would create one person made in their image. And that person made in their image was the king. And the king was always a male, And the king was in charge of enforcing the law of the god and goddesses and in making sure that people paid their sacrifice and paid their dues. Of course, this male king had it set up so that his reign would pass down through his sons or to the next strongest challenger. So you see, kingship... The kingship of the nations was set up from the beginning to oppress people. From the very beginning, by by mixing the power of the king with religious overtones, the people were kept low, not only uh, because of the oppression of the king, but they, they were duped into feeling like, if I'm going to be loyal to my religion, to my god and goddess, then that means I must be loyal to their image bearer, which is the king. You see how insidious that is. What king wouldn't want to keep passing on that religion because it props them up higher and higher and higher? Enter the creation story of Israel, the one that we would claim is the true creation story, the original creation story that all the other ones kind of riff off of. Now, you're in the ancient Near East and you want to tell a creation story? Do you drop some modern poetry out of the sky or a a 21st century journal article? No, you're going to speak the language of the ancient Near Eastern creation story because everybody recognized what that genre was. And so God gives us this story, which when you line them up, very similar flow and language, however, oh, so different. It's the only creation story in the ancient Near East where God creates the stuff The stuff is good, but the stuff is not a God, okay? So there's no polytheism. The only creation story where God creates people out of the abundance of his love, not because he wants us as his slaves. It's the only one like that in the ancient Near East. And it is the only creation story where God creates men and women, all of us, in his image, not just one person and not just one gender. Do you sense how amazing, how revolutionary that would be? In that setting, it ought to be revolutionary to us today. No one person set up over the others, no first among equals, no king or queen queen set above to rule over all. In the beginning, men and women were created in God's image, which means that we were all made to create or, or to rule over creation and to be representatives of God to each other and to the created order. Just let your imagine go for a minute with Adam and Eve and the animals named. Like, they actually got close to lions or naming them and they had a relationship with them. 
You don't get the sense that the animals were freaked out in the very beginning. Like there's this beautiful, I don't know, and I, I think this is, I'll just ad lib a little bit, but like when you, when you look at the Lord of the Rings story, for example, when you read a character like Tom Bombadil, who doesn't make it into the films, he'd be really hard to put in film, but this is a guy who's like a pre-fall Adam in a way. A lot of scholars have made that connection. And he has this way of speaking to the plants and the animals and has this relationship. Um, anyway, I could go on and on, maybe over some other medium. I will do that. Let me focus. Let me sum this up. In the ancient world, to be made in God's image was to be the God's vice regent, his official representative. That's what all the ancient Near Eastern stories were about. In all the other ancient Near Eastern stories, there was one image bearer, the king. In the creation story given to us by Yahweh, all human beings were created to be image bearers. So in a sense, we were all from the very beginning designed to be kings and queens. And then something happened, right? The great rebellion of Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world and spread like a virus infecting every relationship. After the fall, humans still bear the image of God, but it's a blurred image, a cracked image, a tainted image. And because of that, we tend to harm as much as we tend to help. Our creations that we make with our hands eventually crumble and our endeavors atrophy. There's something wrong with us. So it would seem that we are unfit to serve now as kings and queens. We're handicapped by sin, if you will, unqualified to serve as God's vice regents. But that's not the end of the story. God is faithful and gracious, and he never gives up. And long before the story of Samuel, we learn that it is very much in God's plan to give us a king. In Genesis 17, 6, Yahweh promises Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son who would produce a line of people from which nations and kings would come forth. This promise is reaffirmed to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, and to Judah in Genesis 49, 10. After the exodus from Egypt, Moses speaks of a king that God will appoint when the people settle in the promised land. Samuel is set as the people have settled in the promised land, by the way. That's Deuteronomy 17, 14 for all the nerds like me out there. Look it up later. So in a sense, we should be surprised that Samuel is surprised that the people are asking for a king. Like it's in Deuteronomy. It's in, it's in the wilderness wanderings, this, this idea that there would be a, a king appointed. And Samuel, as a prophet, probably knew the law of God. He knew what Moses said about God as uh, appointing a king over Israel who would represent Israel to all the nations. Kingship was very much in God's plan. So what is the problem? What is the problem? The problem was that the Israelite leaders had the right solution, a king, but they had identified the problem incorrectly. Let's go back to Lewis and Clark for a minute. Boats were the right solution to solving the problem of traveling vast distances over bodies of water. That makes a lot of sense. They were right to have boats. But when they came upon the problem of the Rocky Mountains, they had to make a decision. Would they carry their boats 
up this insanely steep and rugged mountain, or would they find a different solution? They had to reassess the nature of the obstacle in front of them to then find the right solution to the problem. So in a similar way, the Israelites were right in thinking of a king as the natural outcome of following Yahweh, but they were wrong in trying to appoint a king so they could be like the nations. They had the right solution, but the wrong problem. They thought their problem was a problem of politics and economics and national defense. And they thought that a king, like the nation's kings, would save them from those problems. But what this episode in the book of Samuel teaches is that their assessment of their situation was incorrect. Their greatest need wasn't political, it was spiritual. And I would argue that that's, in every generation, our greatest need. That's how we get into trouble in all those other areas of life. They didn't need a king like the nations. They needed a king who is modeled after God's own heart. They didn't need a person of power. They needed a person of faithfulness and obedience. They needed someone who would encourage them to trust in their true savior, Yahweh. I think choosing a king like the nations had is lazy. We put our faith in politicians, in our economics, in our culture, and when we do that as our sole solution, when we do that as our sole solution, we abdicate our role as image bearers of God. We just mail it in and say, well, well, these people represent me, and that's lazy for two reasons. First of all, I, I don't take my role seriously. Second of all, what politician don't we complain about? Like whoever's in power, we're always complaining about them. We put people up on pedestals and then we tear them down. And it's way easier than us doing our job. We love a scapegoat. And in essence, we have a sin problem, but we keep trying to fix it with leaders who are like us, who can't fix our sin. And you can see where Samuel is pointing, right? Like the book continues to point us toward Jesus. The one who doesn't hold us down in oppression, but sets us free from sin and death. Jesus is the servant king who washes feet. As Joe read, he's the one who has the full authority to be served at the table, but he's the one doing the serving. He gets his hands dirty. And he died to atone for the sin of the world, for your sin and for mine. Jesus is the king we have been longing for. And when we begin to trust him more, to follow him more, we find that we can walk more fully into who we are created to be, which is image bearers of the living God, reflecting his grace and his mercy and his creativity and wisdom back into the world. If that struck a chord with you, like, I hear that vocation, I know that that's what we're made for, I would invite you to join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, our true king, the model of what we were really created to be, glorious, men and women of gravitas, of purpose, of skill, 
of something to contribute to the beauty of the world, to its right functioning. Lord, we have settled for so much less, so much less, out of fear, out of laziness, out of just not knowing, like losing our way, like these foggy mornings, and it's like a foggy life sometime, Lord. I I thank you for this passage, for bringing clarity in this moment in time, and I pray for your grace to help us to choose you, to take a step deeper in our trust in you, our relationship with you, and receiving more deeply than we have before your forgiveness, your wiping away of, of our sin and shame. And help us to step into the glory that you, that you created us for. Living union with you to be people who reflect you and your character back to each other and to the world. Bless you, Lord, for making this possible, for continuing to pursue us, even in our lostness. Amen.